Hello and welcome to The Scroll. I'm Giorgio Constandi and today we are talking with Amina Brahic. Amina is a lawyer and activist from Montenegro and she is a youth representative for the Democratic Party of Socialists in Montenegro. Today we are going to be talking about the rise of Serb ethno-nationalism in Montenegro. Amina, thank you so much for being here and thank you for giving us your time. Hello, I'm so happy to be here with you to exchange opinions and information and thank you for the opportunity to have our voices heard. I wanted to actually start by asking you about the about two elections that took place uh-huh. in Montenegro. We had the elections in at the end of 2022 and then we also had elections back in 2020. Now, in both of those elections, pro-Serb nationalist parties and coalitions ousted the non-nationalist governments, both on a national level and local level. There were two exceptions. They were in Bar and Bielopolje, um, but generally that was the picture. Um, how has this changed the political atmosphere in Montenegro? Yeah, um, this is a question that to, in order to answer it, I had to take back in time a few steps. So. Uh, Montenegro regained its independence in 2006. So uh, we have separated officially from Serbia and we have regained independence, like I said, and we have started writing our own story all over again. Uh, Montenegro and its citizens haven't faced any serious issues from 2006 until 2020. Uh, when we had those elections that you have mentioned. Those were parliamentary national uh, elections. So before the elections, we had non-nationalist government. The state of Montenegro tried to protect its property from the Church of Serbia, Serbian Orthodox Church. So what, where that took us? Um, the people who opposed to that, I mean, the people from the Serbian Orthodox Church that started a so-called lit- litany, you know what litany is, but actually that was not uh, the act of religion, those were like clerical protests that took for around a year, and it actually revoked, I'm free to say, Serbian ethno-nationalism in Montenegro again. So. That was the source of the results of the 2020 and 2022 elections. So if we focus now on October 2022, where they, there uh-huh. were the municipal elections, um, uh-huh. the pro-Serb Nationalist Party uh, Democratic Front, they gained 52 seats across the country. Um, exactly. Why do you think that... Serb nationalism won the votes that it did and made the gains that it did in October? Yeah, um, from the national elections to these local elections, we had a period with two different governments, which had to change because first one couldn't work, so they tried to make another one, which is also not working right now. So yeah, you thought, okay, people are going to see what's happening. Things are not going well, so maybe they will decide, you know, to vote for
for the good of the country, for the good of really each group of people, citizens that live in Montenegro, but it didn't happen. And here we understood again that um, those parties really have strong support from Serbian Orthodox Church, from Serbia and Russia. When I say support, I'm talking mostly about narrative and logistics. Like they really gave a lot of uh, money and energy to win these elections in Montenegro, because position of our country is very important for the geostrategical reasons. On the 9th of January, uh, two government ministers from the Montenegrin government, the Minister of uh, Finance and the Minister of Justice, they attended the yeah. uh, founding celebrations of the so-called Republika Srpska. Um, I should point out that um, these celebrations, these this commemoration is uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina unconstitutional. Um, and in case anyone listening is not aware of this, um, the Republika Srpska political entity is a genocidal entity which was founded on mass killings, mass rape and atrocities against non-Serbs in northern and eastern Bosnia. It continues to be um, celebrated by the Republika Srpska political elite um, and this was a, a commemoration like every year which was attended by paramilitaries from Russia, um, uh, far-right um, leaders from around Europe. Um, so it's not just restricted to the uh, RS um, politicians. Um, but nonetheless, two government ministers from the Montenegrin government attended this um, celebration, this commemoration of the genocidal entity. Um, you wrote about this, actually, for Antenna yeah. M., um, and you described it as be representing Montenegro's inferno. Um, yeah. Can you explain what you meant by this? Yeah, um, in Montenegro, that small flame started in 2020 when we got this uh, culturally nationalist government. And from that moment on, things like this uh, started being tolerated more and more. And now we are in a situation where you have a Minister of Justice going to celebrate unconstitutional day. Like, justice and constitution, you know, should go together, but they obviously don't. Uh, apart from that, like you said, Republic of Srpska, it's really something that uh, is without any doubts related to genocide. And having those two ministers going there just uh, put Montenegro in a position where many people from not only Bosnia and Herzegovina but other countries too said okay Montenegro ministers are here so they are representing Montenegro but I'm telling you now and I'm telling to everyone who listens to this they went there because they personally wanted to be there I am free to say that majority of Montenegro wasn't happy about it people uh, were angry, people were even desperate at the moment, but you know, and still they are in the government, still that is Montenegrin government, and uh, we really have to wake up people, people have to continue with the protests. I mean, we started that, as you know, in Montenegro, and we gained one of our goals, the new government that would also be kind of a nationalist it wasn't formed now we are trying to get the parliamentary elections as soon as possible but um things like this 
uh, having our ministers in, in the public celebrating Unconstitutional Day. That's something that should really wake every citizen who is living in Montenegro right now. Uh, you mentioned the uh, protests that um, have been happening in Montenegro uh, in response to lots of things. Um, could you give some more information about what's been happening there? Yeah. Those are civil protests that, that people started because like, there is a group of civil activists who are really working hard all this time you know, to, to change things to better and they have collected mass of people. Also non-nationalistic political parties joined them some NGOs joined them and people were protesting against abolishing our constitution. Because you have government uh, with the Prime Minister Dekan Abadovic who is not even looking at the constitution. He's breaking it like it doesn't exist. And yeah, that's that, that, that was the base reason to start this this protest. So um, also we didn't want another that would be our third government from the 2020 elections. I mean, it's pretty clear that it's not going to serve citizens of this country. So we um, we were protesting against the government and <clears throat> the government didn't form. That's a good thing. But now we want elections. Like we want to, we want every person older than 18 in Montenegro to go and vote and to see if we have understood where this is taking us. What do you think the risk is for Montenegrin society if, come the next elections, whenever they are, um, another Serb nationalist coalition is voted into power or manages to scrape enough uh, votes to, to, to form a coalition, a governing coalition? What, would the, what, what is the risk there? What, what is at stake? according to, you know, how you see things. Okay, this is this is country that is a NATO member and full NATO member. And we are also the country that was doing the best in the integration process at the Balkans. I mean, after, of course, Croatia. And now what is at stake? We are going to lose everything. Actually, at this point now, we are getting serious warnings from the European Union that they will uh, break the integration process for Montenegro, they will stop it because we do not have constitutional court. Our, our um, I have to say, parliamentary majority is not able or they don't want to vote for the uh, judges for the constitutional court. And you know that if the country doesn't have a constitutional court that can do its job, it's, it's very risky to do anything. Like you cannot even have the elections without that. So, um, yeah, our integration process is, is at risk. And I think that that would take us, like, not one step closer, but that would take us into Open Balkans. Mm. And Open Balkans is really dangerous plan for the country, not only for Montenegro, but also for Bosnia and Herzegovina and even Serbia and Albania who would join it. Could you just um, explain for any listeners who may not be aware of what the Open Balkans um, concept is? Could you could you explain what what that is and why it's so dangerous? Open Balkans is trying to be represented mostly by, by the government of Serbia and their president Vucic as a 
United States project that is going to uh, get Western Balkans country, which are not European Union members together, and you know, to make some economic freedoms. That's how he's trying to present it. But actually, uh, we are already part of the Berlin process. And we are already creating our path toward the European Union. As you know, Bosnia got the candidate status recently. So I think and uh, every analyst who is not taking sides can take clear uh, image on that that we are doing well and that we can do without open Balkans. Because for the Western Balkan countries, they do have Berlin process coming from the Brussels of the idea. And this idea, open Balkans, is actually it's named open Balkan which is not a clear term and on, even by that you can understand that it's not coming from the English-speaking territory. So um, the idea itself, I think, was made in uh, Eastern part of the world, should I say Russia, and then Serbia is trying, you know, to implement that. So I do believe that this is something that will work for the Serbian slash Russian interests in Balkans. Going back to what we were saying, um, what we were talking about before with the behaviour of some ministers in, in the Montenegrin uh-huh. government, the Minister of Finance and the Minister of Justice, as we've said, they attended the 9th of January commemoration of the Republika Srpska entity. Um, do you think that the behaviour of those two ministers regarding the Bosnian genocide, do you think their behaviour is reflective of a trend in Montenegrin society, or are they just an aberration? Um, those two ministers did that intentionally. They wanted to be there, but also their electorate, their voters wanted them to be there. They were happy about that and they were satisfied about it, you know. So you have people in Montenegro who are not only denying but also celebrating genocide. I'm talking about regular citizens. And I must say that uh, Montenegro has adopted revolution on the genocide in Srebrenica. And I have to say that one former minister of justice was replaced because he denied the genocide in Srebrenica. And he was replaced because one of the members of the parliament from the Democratic Party of Socialists directly asked him the question about the genocide in Srebrenica. And he said that he doesn't agree that was a genocide, that was the war crime, but not the genocide. And after that, he was replaced. Like, uh, Montenegro was still woke enough and uh, was on, on, on the good path at a moment, you know, to replace a person like that from a position of uh, minister. And now it's, I think, one year and a half later, you have a situation where two ministers are going to celebrate Unconstitutional Day of uh, Republika Srpska. So I, from that point of view, we can say that Montenegro is not going in a good way, but I really do try to believe in the power and uh, of young people and their ability to change things for better. So now on the political scene in Montenegro, we have one new movement, one new uh, political party to be, Europa Sad. They are trying to present themselves as a party who is following European discourse, but at the same time, 
they have agreed to make collaboration and to to uh, form um, local authorities in the capital Podgorica with the Democratic Front, which you know is far right. Mm-hmm. So this is also putting a question mark uh, upon the Europe side. In Montenegro from 2020 until 2023, uh, so many things happened and it's sometimes hard to put everything into words, but I'm just trying to make some kind of a timetable because uh, Montenegro after the referendum, after regaining independence, was a really safe country. And I remember when I was um, in Srebrenica and I was talking to people who lived there and they were really worried about situation in Montenegro, you know, they were telling me there is now one more country where we don't feel safe, we don't feel physically safe. They had some flashbacks and they were with a reason worried about something. So this is also giving us some kind of an image about everything. When you say we, of course, you're referring to Bosniaks. Is it, is it fair to say that? Yes. Yes, to be honest, I mean, now we are going maybe a bit uh, far from the topic, but in Srebrenica I have met very few uh, people who are not Bosniaks and who were willing to speak to me as a civil activist. Mm. So yeah, mostly I was spending time with Bosnian people and this is what Bosnian people told me. So I want to now, it sort of leads on from what you were talking about. Um, I want to talk about the effects of the political situation, the empowerment of this sub-ethnic nationalism in Montenegro, and I want to talk about the effects of that at a community level. Being a woman and being Muslim, living in Montenegro, it places you at the intersection of oppressions. Um, From your, you know, from what you've seen on the ground, from your experiences, um, from what you have observed, what are the challenges today being a, a Bosniak woman or any other Muslim woman living in Montenegro? Well, when we talk about being women plus being Muslim, you can imagine that it gets you to facing many challenges. But I have to say that in Montenegro, being a woman, it, it has no nation, it has no religion still. Like a uh, position of a woman, you are you are being discriminated at that level of your gender. So still, you cannot say that uh, Muslim women are being more discriminated to others. I mean, if you okay, if you take a position of minorities, which is Bosniak, which is Croatian, Albanian, Roma, others, and yeah, Serbian. Um, Every of those communities can number some things that are where they feel discriminated. But still in Montenegro, uh, talking about Bosnia community, for example, because I'm, I'm ethnically Bosniak, um, we haven't actually, I was born in 1997. And until now, I haven't been facing some serious challenges in my education not even on the uh, labor market because I was Bosniak. It was more for the reason that I was woman <laughs> and that I was woman who was saying that she doesn't like certain things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, from that point of view, it was harder. But now when you have this political situation where things like the recent situation with the prime ministers are happening and also being a woman in politics, Bosniak woman in politics, Muslim woman in politics, 
it's it's where it you can see all the bad sides of, of people who do not accept you as a minority and uh, what you are. But I have to say that um, Montenegrin people and citizens of Montenegro really, actually, they do not mostly have any issues with that. Actually, they are trying to, um, Montenegrins are really trying to have every group of people who lives in Montenegro feel like uh, at home, not only like at home, because Montenegrins really have that feeling rooted deep in themselves, in their uh, identity, that Montenegro is not only Montenegrin. And Montenegrins don't want Montenegro to be only Montenegrin. So uh, growing up here as a ethnically Bosniak was great, but <laughs> talking about position of a woman is different. I mean, this is this is another level and this is worldwide. Obviously, you're very involved with um, anti-nationalist activism. Um, you're a youth representative for the Democratic Party of Socialists. Um, how can anti-nationalist movements across the Balkans, so not just in Montenegro, how can they work together to prevent further nationalist incursions into power? Well. I think that in every country which is facing ethno-nationalistic issues, um, the non-nationalistic groups mm-hmm. uh, have to work on the propaganda. And I'm not talking about some populistic propaganda, I'm talking about having a plan starting with the education from, pri- from primary school. I must say, I mean, even my party, the time member of Democratic Party of Socialists, was ruling party for 30 years. And we made a gap in education. Our our students, uh, our literature that is obligatory in schools, is not giving you enough information on civil society. So our students just go through the system, and they do not have clear image about their country, about countries that are surrounded geographically. They do, but not uh, in in you know any other way. So after school, after everything. Uh, every individual has to take some non-formal education to have clear image on what's going on, not only the Montreal, but also Balkans. So I think that um, the key thing to do is to work on education system in each and every country. Also, I think it's very important to point at the things which are um, ethno-nationalism, like we cannot have our eyes closed in front of the ethno-nationalism because 30 years earlier, it took us to war. We don't want that to take us to war again. We don't want new genocides. Do you have hope for your country? Of course. <laughs> I always have hope for my country. Uh, Montenegro is not first time in its history facing these kind of issues. Mm. Like Montenegro was in a waivers position in, uh, eight, in 1918 and that period where you know, Serbia occupied this country. Uh, Montenegro went out of that as a winner. And I do believe that after regaining our independence and with having young people which are ready to stay here, work for the society, work for the communities, work for the Montenegro, we are going to win this game again. Amen. Um, (laughs) One final question then. Uh, Okay. Um, where's your favorite place in Montenegro and why? The Montenegro is 
so beautiful and so welcoming place that you cannot choose only one spot to say this is my favorite but of course I have to say and this is what I feel in my heart my favorite place in Montenegro is my hometown Kievia that's where where you can feel a little bit of everything with Montenegro is and I really feel kind of sad about it if people come to Montenegro and they go only to the seaside they don't go to the north. So if you come to Montenegro, go to the north, you are going to see really cultural diversity, which is amazing. And you are going to meet people who gave every uh, every every piece of their, how to say, good intention to this country. And coming from different ethnic groups, different religious groups. So that's what north of the Montenegro is. And yeah, my favorite spot is definitely my hometown, Kielia. But I also have to say that Cetinje is a place that you cannot miss if you come to Montenegro. Like if you want to have Montenegrin history in front of your eyes, go to Cetinje. Okay, summer 2023, Cetinje and Pievia. There we go. <laughs> You're welcome, I'm very happy about it. Uh, Amina, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for your time, thank you for this beautiful conversation. Thank you to our listeners for your continued support. Don't forget to subscribe to our Spotify channel if you haven't already. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Scroll Online to keep up to date with our latest content. I'm Giorgio Constandi, this is The Scroll. Speak to you soon. Thank you.